as our Sunday message. Today's scripture reading, it comes from Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 to 24. And the title of today's sermon is The Beginning of Suffering. Again, that's Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 24, The Beginning of Suffering. And so this is God's holy and inerrant word starting in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate. Then the eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed, sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves in the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman you gave to me to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And Adam, and to Adam he said, Because of you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This is the word of the Lord.
We are starting a new Sunday morning teaching series today that we're going to be in during the season of Lent. And it's on the topic of suffering. And we're doing that in part because suffering is one of those things in life that all of us experience and that all of us experience on a regular basis. Hang on a second. That's better. I don't know who said it, but they're right. In this broken world, you're either in the middle of some kind of suffering, you're just coming out of suffering, or you're just about to enter into it. It's a little morbid, but I think it's pretty accurate. Clearly, not all suffering is the same, but if you are alive on this planet, at some point, you're going to experience pain and loss, grief that you really didn't want, and you're going to have to deal with it because everybody suffers. And that's a problem because our world does not offer good tools for dealing with suffering. And so I'd like to take a longer introduction this morning because if you look at the various religions and philosophies of this world, they all struggle to deal with this issue of suffering. And I want you to feel some of the, the pinch here, some of the pressure, recognizing that they, they don't all have good answers. And I want you to feel that because you may have adapted, I'm sorry, adopted some of these elements uh, for yourself as you've dealt with suffering. I know that I have. And I want us to see that they don't quite give us what we need. And I want us to see that so that we are that much better ready to hear what God himself has to say. Now, I, I found Timothy Keller's book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, to be really helpful in just organizing some of these thoughts here Should, and need to give him credit. So there are religions and philosophies that are more moralistic, those that are more based on karma, and they say what? That in some sense, you get what you deserve, that bad things happen to bad people. So either you've done something wrong now, and so you're experiencing the consequences of what you've done, or you did something wrong in an earlier life, and now the universe is paying you back. But at the end of the day, either way, the argument is that you are responsible for all of the bad things that you experience. And so in a belief system like that, there is no unjust suffering. You're just simply getting what's coming to you. Now, if you think about that for a little while, you realize there's a grain of truth there, right? If you do foolish things, if you say foolish things, if you are a foolish person, it's often the case then that you tend to call foolishness down on your own head. That's often true, but not always. You've all done things, I've done things that were wrong, we've done things that were dumb, and experienced no consequences whatsoever. Or what gets our attention even more is when the opposite is true. When we see injustice, when there are times that we ourselves don't deserve the bad things that we're getting, or times when something worse happens to other people who did nothing to deserve it. You can think here about victims of racism victims of birth defects, victims of crime, victims of natural disasters. Times where it would be absolutely wrong, where it would be unjust to say to someone, well, you earned this. Either you did something wrong now or in a former life, but either way, it's ultimately your fault. You realize that's the kind of help that Job's counselors gave to him, help that was completely unhelpful. A moralistic way of life just will not give you a robust way of dealing with the suffering that in this life you will encounter. But neither does the opposite extreme, the religions and philosophies that are more fatalistic. The ones that say there is no way to escape your fate, that bad things have been decided for you, and that there's nothing you can do about it. 
You can think here about astrology, where the stars and the planets have set the course of your life. You can think about religions like in Greek mythology, where the fates have decreed things for you that you can't escape. And even though you may not hold to those formal philosophies, I think that voice of fatalism often speaks into a lot of our lives when we suffer. How do you recognize that voice? What does it sound like? It says things like, there's nothing you can do about this thing that just happened to you. And so what? Well, you, you just have to man up. You have to be stoic in the face of pain and loss. Don't complain, just accept, then bravely soldier on. And again, you realize that there is just a little bit of truth there, right? Losing yourself in endless grief, endless despair over things you can't change is not a helpful way of dealing with suffering. But it's equally not helpful to say to somebody who's lost a loved one, shouldn't you be over this by now? Don't cry, just move on. That feels cold, why? Because it is cold. It's uncaring. It's a denial of you as a human being, and it, it, it says that what you feel is not important. It devalues you as a person, and it devalues the other person because it devalues the relationship that you had that you're now missing. It says to you, that other person, they, they, they just weren't all that important to you. Losing them should not impact you as much as it is. And we know that all, nobody lives like that. When you love someone, you know that what you feel about them is real. You know that your love is real. You know that how you value them, what you do for them, that all of that is meaningful. And so when that other person is gone, when they reject you or when they're taken from you, when a marriage ends, when your friend has an incurable illness, when you're in a life-altering accident, when your child is rejected at school, when those things happen, they matter to us because people matter to us. The individuals have worth and value in and of themselves, and it's not right then that they're diminished. It's not right that others have been hurt. It's not right that they've had something taken from them or that they've been taken from us. And there's, there's, therefore, there's no way to be fatalistic about that, to say, oh, well, what's next? You can't approach life that way and still be fully human. Fatalism does not give you enough tools to deal with suffering. You can't say, oh, well, because the people in your life matter and because you've dreamed. You've dreamed about what the future might be like with them. You've dreamed of what you might do or how you might live with them as they were. And suddenly, when suffering enters in, what happens? That dream is gone because they're not the same as they used to be. And that's where Buddhism will come in and say, well, that's exactly where the problem is. You tried to cling to something that was an illusion. You tried to cling to the belief that you and that other person are individual selves, and now you're suffering because you have these unfulfilled desires with that other person. If you could just see what's real, if you could obtain real knowledge that everything around you is impermanent, everything is unreal, including your belief that you're an individual self, then you would be able to detach yourself from this impermanent world, including detaching yourself from impermanent people. Do that, and you'll no longer suffer. And you realize again, okay, wow, there's, there's just a little bit of truth there. You can't cling to dreams that are no longer possible. But to say that we're suffering because of an illusion 
is problematic. Because if it's all an illusion, how come the suffering then is real? The suffering is real. We feel it. Because we know that those desires that we have, those feelings that we have for each other are real. And we know that the feelings that other people have for us are real. And say to, so to say that none of those feelings count because none of us is a real individual self is a denial. You have to stuff those feelings. You have to pretend that they're not there. You have to deaden yourself. You have to become less human. You think there has to be a better way to handle the very real pain that you and I experience. A better way than believing that the dreams and desires that you had never really mattered anyway. Approach suffering through any of these religions or philosophies and you end up with a solution that's ultimately unsatisfying. But as unhelpful as all of those options are, our secular society offers even less to people who are caught up in suffering. At least in those religious ways of thinking, suffering can be useful. It can drive you to be a better person, to embrace a better you. But that's not true in our modern world. Okay, what's true in the modern world? Modern secularism begins with an assumption. It assumes that the material world is all that there is, that it simply exists, no one crafted it, no one guides it, and so it exists without any necessary meaning or purpose. Now, I understand that's a faith. I understand that you can't prove that there is no God. But modern secularism starts with that belief and then tries to build a life on it as if it were true. And so you're told that there is no larger objective reality that you need to fit into. That no one defines for you what a good life is. Therefore, there's no one that you need to line up with in order to have a good life. Instead, what? It's all up to you. It's up to you to create meaning and purpose for yourself in this larger meaningless world to create your own happiness. And since the material world is all that there is, you have to throw yourself into something here, something in the physical world, so that you can be happy. Now, that's appealing, right? There is great freedom in that kind of world. You get to choose what you think fits you best. You get to choose what you find satisfying and fulfilling, what you find meaningful, and then you can give yourself to it. Great freedom there. You're the master of your fate, the captain of your soul. Great freedom and great danger. Because the very definition of suffering is that you lose the thing that you find fulfilling and meaningful. The definition is that something takes away the thing that you deeply valued. That you no longer have the thing that you relied on to give you satisfaction and joy in life. And so the next logical question is, what do you turn to when you lose what you'd been building your life on? What do you do when that really special relationship ends and that other person doesn't want you like you still want them? What do you do when the child you lived for doesn't want very much to do with you? What do you do when the company that you sacrificed everything else for, your time, your family, your health, what happens when it no longer values your contribution like it used to? What do you do when no one thinks that the book you wrote is worth reading? That your painting is worth seeing? That your food is worth eating? That your music is worth hearing? 
What do you do when the body that you spent hours sculpting betrays you, gets sick, starts aging, and you no longer get the looks that you once did? What do you do when your mind starts slipping? Do you see the danger? This is what suffering does. It comes in and it takes away from you the very thing that you find meaningful, and it does this to every one of us. So what are you supposed to do? What are you supposed to turn to when it takes away the thing, when it takes away everything at some point that your society urged you to build your value on and to find your happiness in? It's at that point that you realize the secular philosophy really has nothing to offer. Nothing that it can promise you that will last. It gives you incredible freedom to craft your life. <laughs> but it does so at the expense of, expense of taking away any kind of stability that can support that life. Do you see the danger? Our modern world, in seeking to be free from all constraints, at the same moment takes away the tools that you need to face how hard it is to live in this world. And in that sense, I think you can argue that the modern secular world leaves people with even fewer resources than the religious beliefs and philosophies do. I found this really compelling. Dr. Paul Brand was a pioneering orthopedic surgeon. He was treating leprosy patients, spent the first part of his medical career in India and the last part of his career in, here in the U.S. And he writes, in the United States, I encountered a society that seeks to avoid pain at all costs. Patients lived at a greater comfort level than any I had previously treated, but they seemed far less equipped to handle suffering and far more traumatized by it. That's why we're studying this topic for the next few weeks. Because what you discover is that Christianity does give you tools that you're not going to find anywhere else. That's not to be triumphalist. It's hopeful. God knows that you're going to suffer, and yet he cares about you so much that he wants you to be able to navigate it well when it comes to you. Now, from one perspective, when you ask, well, what does Scripture have to say about suffering, <laughs> there's an embarrassment of riches. You could probably look on almost any page. It's far too much to cover in a long series, much less a short one. And so let me lay out, here's my goal over these next few weeks. My goal is not to be exhaustive. Instead, I want to point us to a few very important categories that you have to learn to think in if you're going to deal well with suffering. That doesn't mean that you're actually going to have learned to use the categories just by listening. That's not how the Christian life works. You still have to apply them. You have to practice working with them, but I'm hoping to give us analytical categories along with reasons for why you would want to use them that will point you to what you need when you suffer. Okay, that's the goal, to learn better how to think about the pain and suffering that you experience in this world so that you can handle it better. So for today, to get us started out of Genesis chapter 3, I want to draw our attention to three things. First, the sources of suffering that you encounter in this world and the impact they have on you. Second, the sovereignty of God over all suffering, including yours. And then third, a surprising sorrow that you could not have expected. 
Three things for today. The sources of suffering, the sovereignty of God, and a surprising, unexpected sorrow. First, we've seen over the past several weeks that our hearts are responsible for either turning to the Lord or for turning away from Him. And you see that in our passage today. God told Adam in chapter 2 that he was not to eat the fruit of one of the trees in the garden. But Eve, chapter 3, verse 6, sees that the fruit of this one tree was to be desired to make one wise. And so she disobeyed God and ate it. She turned away from God. Why? Because she desires something. She wants something. And you hear there the language of the heart that we've been studying for the last two months. She wants something more than she wants to listen to the God who loves her more than anything else will love her. And yet in that moment, his command coming from his heart of love is not what she most wants. Instead, she desires to be wise. And she believes that by disobeying God, she'll get what she wants. Now clearly, verse 13, she's deceived, and so her heart turns away from the Lord. But notice that it does not turn away from the Lord in a vacuum. Our hearts turn in an environment, and that environment nudges us in one direction or another. It either tempts us away from the Lord, or it encourages us toward Him. So what are those elements in that environment? Well, clearly, it's a world in which there are spiritual beings, and ones that are not friendly toward humanity. Jesus later will refer back to this account in the book of John, chapter 8, 44, and he talks about the devil as a murderer from the beginning a liar and the father of lies. And Jesus is drawing a connection there between the serpent in the garden and the devil, meaning that this serpent in Genesis is not merely a physical creature, but it's one that's channeling the devil, one that is channeling the devil's agenda. And that agenda is to challenge God's word, to lie. God told Adam that on the day that he ate of the fruit of this tree, he would surely die. The serpent lies to Eve, verse 4, and says that she will surely not die. He says to her, disobeying God is safe. There are no dramatic, irreversible consequences. Eve obviously finds out that's not true. What you see playing out here is what 1 Peter 5, 8 warns us about. He says, here's the nature of the devil. He's our adversary. He prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. He hates human beings hates how we reflect the image and the glory of God, hates how we remind him of God, hates human beings and is actively out to get us, to drive a wedge between us and God. And to that end, he incites, provokes, tempts, does that on an individual level, does that with groups, does that with societies. His agenda is to hurt people, to bring about the worst world possible, if you want to deal with suffering well, you have to understand that that's part of the environment that you live in. Part of the environment that your heart now has to interact with. But it's an environment that has more than purely spiritual beings. There's also human beings in that world who will mistreat you. Verse 15, there's enmity. There's hatred that cuts right through the middle of our whole human race. Hatred between those people who follow the serpent, his offspring, and between the offspring of the woman, those who look for God to bring a deliverer to come through our race. Follow God on this planet. And you're learning here in Genesis 3 that you will be hated. It's what Jesus promised his disciples in John chapter 16. Now you may not respond with hate. 
Jesus didn't. But you have to be, realize that being hated is just part of what you face in life. Now, that's true of the human race generally. But you realize we also get that individually, from individual people. Human beings now, verses 12 and 13, engage in blame shifting, throwing others under the bus so that we don't have to deal with our own failings. In addition, you also face rivalry between men and women that wasn't there before. God says to Eve, verse 16, that your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. It's actually a little bit of an interpretation more than a translation. The ESV footnote tells you it's more accurately translated, your desire shall be toward your husband, but he shall rule over you. And you think, okay, well, <laughs> toward, contrary, those, those are different. Why, did this, why does it use the word contrary? It's because in the context of Genesis, desire and rule are not good words. These are the same words that you find in chapter 4, one chapter over, to describe what's going on in Cain's heart as he envies his brother Abel and plots to kill him. God comes to Cain and tells him that sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is toward you, but you must rule over it. Desire and rule, same two words used in the same exact way as in chapter 3. So what do they mean here in chapter 4? And that will help us understand chapter 3. Desire has the sense of wanting to be in charge. Sin's desire is toward you. It wants to be in charge of you. And rule fights against that desire. You must not let it be in charge. In other words, desire and rule are words of power used to dominate. And God says in chapter 3 that that's now part of the dynamic between men and women, especially when they're in a close, intimate relationship. The woman Eve is no longer content to come from man's side and to partner with Adam with what God gave him to do. She now wants to master him. And the man is no longer content to lead with her at his side. He now wants to dominate her. Or to use the language of Ephesians 5. Wives are not naturally inclined to submit to their husbands, to surrender their lives by living for the good of their husbands. And husbands are no longer naturally inclined to surrender their lives, to die for their wives by sacrificing everything they have for whatever is in their wife's best interest. Instead, now rivalry, power, domination are baked into our relationships so that they confuse what it means to lead well and to be a partner. And it turns relationships that were intended to be a blessing into ones that bring deep hurt and pain. And all of that is now part of the environment that you live in, that your heart now interacts with. We suffer in this world because others sin against us, both pure spiritual beings and human beings. And we suffer because, in part because sin has ruined the purely physical world. Verse 16, there's now great pain in childbirth. So that the only way to populate the universe with miniature copies of God, images of God, comes through incredible pain. And humanity does this populating now in a world that fights against us. Verses 17 and 18, the ground is cursed. It doesn't produce like it should. We can still live here, which is incredible grace after having sinned against God. But it's not easy. It's dangerous. The physical world is out to get us. Wild animals now threaten us. 
We no longer rule over them in the way that we once did. Drought and floods produce famines, earthquakes, volcanoes, forest fires destroy life and property. Storms, hurricanes, tornadoes affect even more people more often. It is a struggle now just to live in this physical world. And it's a struggle that every one of us will lose. Verse 19, Adam has promised that one day you will return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. There's more tragedy in that sentence than I can unpack. God told Adam in Genesis 1 that he was to reign over all the creatures, rule over this world. Chapter 2, that he was to work the earth and to care for it. He's to rule over it all like God would. He had been elevated above the dust, above the mere materiality of this world. And now he's told that one day it's going to rule over him. That one day you and I will die. And that doesn't happen all in one moment. Instead, that sentence of death infects every single one of us from the moment of conception on. We live our lives in bodies now that are susceptible to diseases that will attack us, waste us away, and kill us. We live our lives in bodies that generate problems from the inside, cancers and growths. And if those don't kill us, we simply wear out. Our joints wear out, our organs stop functioning. Death now comes, fast or slow, but it comes relentlessly. And that's now part of the environment that you live in and that your heart has to interact with. These are all the different ways that sin has impacted the world that you and I live in. Now, this is the world that we've grown up with. We've lived in it all our lives, and so in some sense it feels familiar to us, like, oh, this, <laughs> this is just the way it is. These ways are not normal. They're not how God intended this world to be. And one day when he remakes the earth, these ways will be eliminated. But for now, this is your reality and mine. You live constantly, daily, with impersonal and personal suffering simply because you live in a broken world. And your heart then interacts with that environment, either to move toward the Lord in trust and confidence as you suffer, or it moves away, hoping, trying to provide a better life for itself. In that sense, how do we think about all the things that you experience in life? Evil spiritual forces that tempt you, difficult people, natural disasters, pain and frustration, a body that doesn't work right. Those are all the things that are external to your heart, including your body. But they are things through which temptation comes, including through your body. Things that can tempt you not to put your trust and confidence in the Lord, but to try to do something to give yourself a better life. Now, sometimes that temptation comes with an audible voice. Serpent speaks to Eve to deceive her. Verse 17, Adam listens to Eve's voice, hears her voice instead of God's voice, ends up rebelling against God. Sometimes the temptation is audible. Sometimes it's inaudible. Sometimes you're just scared of something in the larger world. Sometimes you don't feel right in your own body. You don't like how it looks. You don't like how it feels. You don't like how it functions. And so you're tempted to do something to take care of yourself. Something that would take God and push him and push his words to the side. 
because you think that if you do that, then life will be better. Now, none of these external things, including your own body, can make you sin. Suffering does not cause you to sin. But please hear this, and, and this, God understands this. Suffering makes sin look really, really attractive because it makes sin look like a way out of suffering. That's point one, the various sources of suffering and the impact that they can have on you. What do you need then if you're going to suffer well? Well, above everything else, you need point two, to know that God is sovereign over all suffering. Did you notice all the places that God takes responsibility for the curses that we now experience? How what we experience is not just the natural consequences of what Adam did in rebelling, but that they are the specific result that God brings in response to Adam's rebelling. Verse 14, he curses the serpent, humbles the one that was more crafty than any of the wild animals so that now it crawls on its belly. Verse 15, he puts enmity between the serpent and the woman, between their two offspring. Verse 16, he makes the pains of childbirth very severe. He declares that there will be no peace between the sexes. Verse 17, he curses the ground so that it produces thorns and thistles. He turns productive work into painful toil. Verse 19, he sentences Adam to death along with all the rest of the human race. Read through chapter 3 and you will realize there is not one apologetic statement there. Instead, God takes full responsibility for all of the hard things that we experience here on earth. He's in charge of them, active in bringing them, never backs away from that reality. The question that Christians have to wrestle with is not, why does God allow suffering? That's too passive a question. The question is, why does God actively curse the world? Not, why does God let bad things happen? Why does a good God decree that bad things happen? That's a question that Scripture never lets you get away from. Because from one end to the other, whether you understand why you're suffering or not, God always says that he is completely in charge of what happens in his universe without once ever becoming evil himself, without ever having done wrong to anyone, without ever being unjust, somehow he remains wholly good while in the same moment nothing is outside of, control, of his control in his universe. And so you're regularly faced with passages like Romans chapter 8, verse 20, that tell us that God subjected the creation to futility, that he cursed it so that it's no longer what it once was. It's no longer a place that works well for humanity. It's no longer a place where human beings easily thrive. But now it's a place that for all of its beauty is broken and dangerous, and God says that he's the one who made it that way. You think, why? Why, why did he do that? A passage like Romans 8 seems to suggest that there's a relationship between humanity and the realm that we have responsibility for. There's a relationship between human beings and the universe, such that if the humans are ruled over by sin, if we are subject to decay, to death, in bondage to sin, that it's fitting then that the universe is also in bondage. That's part of an answer that you'll find in Scripture. 
But it's also largely a philosophical answer. And philosophical answers can be somewhat helpful, but let's be honest. If you're suffering, if your parent is suffering, if your child is suffering, if your friend is suffering, philosophy only gets you so far. Because suffering is personal. (laughs) Suffering is not abstract. It's not something that we can just talk about as though it's impersonal. Does it help to know that suffering is not out of control, that God is sovereign over it, that nothing happens to you that surprises him? Yes, it really does help to know that with this caveat. If you trust him. It helps to know that he's sovereign if you trust him, but that's the question, isn't it? How do you trust someone who says they're responsible for bringing into your life the things that you don't like, especially if he doesn't spell out the reasons why? And chapter 3 doesn't. Sometimes in Scripture, God will explain why he allows suffering. Go back through chapter 3, and what do you discover? You see that God unapologetically categorically takes responsibility for subjecting the creation to frustration, for cursing all of it. (laughs) But he doesn't tell you there why he does so. We can infer that Adam and Eve understood that they're punished because God cannot let the guilty go unpunished. They understand that he's a God of justice, that he is displaying his righteousness, and that they've done wrong. But that still doesn't answer the question. How can they trust him as they experience the consequences of their sin? How can they trust his love, his goodness, his good purposes while they're suffering? And maybe to put a finer point on it this morning, how can you? How can you trust him and obey him when he brings things into your life that you don't understand and that you really don't want? The answer to that is found in his character. It's found, point three, in an unexpected sorrow. It's found in a God who pays far more than anyone else when he punishes our world by cursing his creation. Think again about what's happening here. First, by subjecting the universe to frustration, to cursing it, God is doing what? He is blurring some of his own glory. He made the universe for us to enjoy, but far more than that, he made the universe to display his own glory. It's first about him. It's not first about us. He made the universe to make visible his invisible qualities, to give us a a, a glimpse into his creativity, a glimpse into his abundance, a glimpse into how he's bursting with life, uh, uh, to see how amazing, how stunning he is, how peaceful and harmonious he is. That's what the whole creation is supposed to demonstrate. And now that it's not what it was, we can't see him as clearly as he is, as clearly as he wants to show himself. And he took that road. He had a choice. Could destroy us, wipe humanity out, preserve the rest of creation. Or as Romans 8 said, he could subject the creation to frustration, put it in bondage while we ourselves are in bondage to sin until all of the children of God are liberated. 
And that's the course that God chose. He chose to intentionally blur and hide some of his glory now in order to rescue us. Cursing this world costs him because it no longer reflects his life, his joy, his goodness like it once did. It costs him, and he willingly pays that cost so that we live. In that sense, he suffers loss. He does not get lost in pain like we can. He's not driven by his emotions like we can be. He doesn't lose his joy and contentment. But he does pay a cost. He suffers loss for our sake so that we can live. It's one thing you see in Genesis 3. Second, you see him pay more than that. When God finds Adam and Eve, they're hiding from him, verse 8. Wearing coverings of fig leaves, verse 7. Why? <laughs> Nothing's changed about them physically. They were naked before, they're naked now. Why all this emphasis on hiding and covering? It's because they've lost the most important thing they could have. They're no longer righteous. They've lost the covering of righteousness. See, when you're righteous, when you've done nothing wrong and you know it, you don't care who sees you or how much they see. But when you're not righteous, you can't stand to have anyone see what you're really like. You hide. You can't even stand to have God see. They lost the original righteousness they had, their original blamelessness, and now they're doing their best to cover themselves up from each other, isolating themselves from each other, and from God. And what does God do? He invites them to honesty. He invites them to confessing what they've done, to voluntarily talk about how they've sinned. He invites them to uncover themselves in front of him and each other. And when they do that, when they voluntarily uncover themselves, what does God do? Verse 21. He covers them. The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. He made coverings for them, better coverings than they made for themselves. But don't miss this. He made coverings that cost him. Where did those skins come from? They came from his animals. They came from creatures that he made for what? For his own glory. Fig leaves were not enough to cover their loss of righteousness that made them embarrassed over their nakedness. To cover that required a sacrifice. It required blood. Blood from his creatures. Blood that cost him as their creator. It cost him the loss of what he had made. A cost again that he willingly paid for them. He suffers. He experiences a loss that he could have avoided. He sacrifices his own animals for the people who rejected him. He suffers so that we can live with him. But he's not done paying. Because third, verse 15, he promises that one day one will come who will crush the serpent's head. But who will only do that by suffering himself. Who will have his own heel bruised in the process. That promise came true thousands of years later. Jesus came to earth. And in that body, God 
personally suffered. God did not hold himself back from the suffering that he brought to this universe. He entered into it. Jesus, fully God, lived here in a fully human body that was subject to death. Subject to all the bodily weaknesses that you and I have that lead up to death. He lived among people who sinned against him, who ostracized him, verbally attacked him, plotted against him, attempted to rule and subdue him. He had to deal with the devil relentlessly, tempting him, urging him to disobey God. Jesus dealt with all of that larger broken environment voluntarily and never sinned. <laughs> Which means he experienced temptation like you and I never do because he never gave in to it which means that it squeezed him and pressured him far beyond anything that you've ever felt. You and I have given in. What does that mean? We know what it is to resist up to a point and then to give in. And when that happens, what? The, the temptation is gone. We have no idea what it would be like to live perfectly righteously, to continue to resist and resist and resist and resist and resist, to never need to be clothed with a sacrifice. To feel all of the weight of that pressure down on you. Jesus knew exactly what that was like. Experienced all of the agony of it personally. God himself does not hold himself back from the suffering that he decrees for this earth. But he enters into it in ways that you and I cannot imagine. And he lived here in a broken, cursed world facing constant temptation to turn away from the Father until Jesus died here, until he was rejected, betrayed by his own people, beaten and tortured by a different people, purely for their entertainment. And it wasn't just Jesus who entered into the suffering of this world, because the Father experienced what it's like to lose his child, his only son, but it was only after sin had so twisted and distorted Jesus that the Father essentially disowned him, forsook him on the cross, metaphorically could not stand to look at him any longer. You have never suffered anywhere near what God has gone through for you. This is the unexpected, overarching theme to Scripture, that God does not hold himself back from experiencing suffering personally. But instead, when God slices the pie of suffering, he serves himself the biggest helping. And he does that to keep you from experiencing the full misery of the peace that you would serve yourself. That's why you can trust him, even when he allows suffering into your life. It's because he's willing to take the biggest cost on himself in order to bring about restoration in order to bring about the death of death, in order to bring the return of life, to open the path to the tree of life. In that sense, God uses what he hates to bring about what he loves. Johnny Erickson, quote from her. And the person who experiences most the things that God hates is himself in order to love you. Does that explain why we all suffer in the particular unique ways that we do? Not even close. 
but it says that you can trust him in the suffering that he allows, that he decrees for your life. You can trust that if there was no other way to restore you than to plunge himself into the darkest, most painful suffering that you can't imagine, you can trust that what you experience is just as equally necessary for his purposes, even if at the moment you don't understand how that's possible.